1: Welcome to Politics by Faith. I'm Mike Slater. Merry Christmas. Thank you for being here. We got something special for you today. A while back on the TV show, we recorded a special on the book of Leviticus. I don't know of any other TV program or station that would allow such a thing, but we spent an hour on the book of Leviticus. We we did a special on each of the first five books of the Bible, each of uh, the books of the Torah. One could argue that of all the books in the Torah... I I would say Exodus, but a close second is Leviticus, on what is most relevant to America, and our founding fathers knew the Bible intimately, intimately, which is very obvious. Look at the the Liberty Bell, right? The, the inscription on the Liberty Bell, of all the things that they could have written on the Liberty Bell, is Leviticus, Leviticus twenty five ten, proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof, like. like That's in Leviticus. Our founders knew that. It's a great line. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. So we break all this down and make this perfectly relevant to us all today. The Bible is living and active. Let's do it. Hey, Slider Crusaders. America is the greatest country in the world. Welcome to today's special about the book of Leviticus. Why are we doing this? Our culture today says that these are just silly stories of an an ancient religion that doesn't mean anything anymore to us and all the rest. Uh, We are much more advanced than this old silly thing. We're much more progressive today, more enlightened than those backwards people in the Bible. My goal here is to show how relevant these ancient books are to us today. And while the world is looking for the latest, newest, shiniest fad to cling to, to find meaning, I prefer to go back to God. Jeremiah 6.16, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths. where the good ways and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Look for the ancient paths, the ancient roads. We'll get back to that more in the final segment. I want to start off with this point before we dive into Leviticus specifically. uh, Our founding fathers read the Bible. They didn't just keep it on their desk and like try to take it through osmosis. They read it and they knew it. There's always this debate about how Christian were they. That doesn't matter to me as much as they knew scripture in and out. And you can tell because the way they just reference it in passing, and even these obscure scriptures, they knew their Bible cover to cover, and it changed who they were and then obviously what they created. When Abraham Lincoln, I know he's not a founding father, but we we'll go with it. Uh, this is a man whose mother, Nancy Hanks, read him the Bible every day by the fire. She died when Abraham was, uh, was nine years old. But he later said of her, I remember her prayers, and they have always followed me. They have clung to me all my life. But Abraham Lincoln would make these allusions, right? So so some of his famous lines, Lincoln said, a house divided against itself cannot stand, right? Everyone knows that line from Abraham Lincoln. Uh, the, The nation can't survive half slave, half free. That's Matthew 12, 25. Jesus said, every city or house divided against itself cannot stand, right? So that biblical scriptural language was ingrained into Abraham Lincoln, not just at a young age, but throughout his life, right? Now, what's noteworthy is Lincoln did not say, uh, hey, everyone, you know, in Matthew 12, 25, it's, he just said it, and everyone knew it. Biblical knowledge was high amongst the American people. Lincoln also said that the Declaration of Independence was an apple of gold, and it was framed in silver. That The frame was the Constitution, right? That's Proverbs twenty-five eleven. A word fitly spoken by you now would be like apples of gold and pictures of silver. Lincoln did not say, hey, you know, Proverbs 12, 25, 11. He just made the illusion and everyone's like, oh, that's brilliant. I get it. Yeah, I see what you did there. If you go to uh, Philadelphia, again, just another point about how the, the Bible is ingrained into our founding and who we are, who our, what our culture used to be, at least. If you go to Philadelphia, uh, you got to go see the, the Liberty Bell, right? It's fun. And uh, don't get distracted by the crack. There's more than just the crack in it. Uh, Along the top, there's an inscription. Uh, This Liberty Bell was uh, commissioned in 1751. It says, proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. That is Leviticus 25.10. The Bible shaped the habits and worldview and mindset of the founding generations. If you look at the private records and and people's wills from the era if they had a book to pass on down to family members it was the bible that oftentimes was the one book and it was certainly the one book that americans were most familiar with and today we are not at all familiar with it you ask people seriously you went on the streets and asked people name a bible first like one name a book of the bible they probably wouldn't be able to, but if you said name a bible verse and like the best thing you'll get is uh uh everything happens for the best you're like that's not in there that's that's not a bible you just made that up someone made that's just like a quote from like an inspirational story like that that's not in the bible final point on this uh there was a giant survey done of political literature in our fi- founding eras and the Bible was cited more than any European writer, more even than any European school of thought. So the Bible was quoted more than anything about like the Enlightenment. Right? The Bible was one-third of all citations. Deuteronomy, just Deuteronomy, was cited more than Montesquieu, twice as often as John Locke. Paul was mentioned in, our, in the founding writings more than Blackstone. Blackstone was the, the English judge who wrote commentaries on the laws of England. Paul was quoted more than Blackstone. Now, there are two main ways that the Bible influenced our founders uh, specifically. First is in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. Let's do uh, Deuteronomy 28 first if you faithfully obey the voice of the lord your god being careful to do all of his commandments that i command you today the lord your god will set you high above all the nations of the earth and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the lord your god blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field, or in the country. That is Deuteronomy 28. Leviticus 26. If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season, and the ground will yield its crops and the trees their fruit. I will grant peace in the land, and you will lie down, and no one will make you afraid. I will remove wild beasts from the land, and the sword will not pass through your country. I will look on you with favor and make you fruitful and increase your numbers, and I will keep and I will keep my covenant with you. But... If you will not listen to me and carry out these commands, and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring on you sudden terror, wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight, sap your strength. You will plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. And it goes on. Uh, in Leviticus and gets uh, worse. (laughs) It gets worse for them, more brutal. That's Leviticus 26. Our founding fathers knew this, and they viewed America as a new nation founded on a covenant with God, that covenant. If we do this, then if we don't, then this. This is why uh, Ben Franklin's proposed seal like like symbol for the United States of America was this picture. This is Moses parting the Red Sea. This is the scene from Exodus. The Israelites escaping Pharaoh and Egypt for freedom, just like our founders believed we were escaping Europe for freedom. We are the second great exodus. That's how our founding fathers viewed it, and they viewed America as a covenantal nation. Second great truth. That our founding fathers learned from reading the bible was the depravity of man original sin and man's depravity this is at complete contrast with today's secular view that everyone is basically good deep down we're all good people everyone's so nice and good and wonderful if you just dig deep enough everyone's good no wrong this is this true biblical understanding of humanity and human nature is what led our founders to design a system of checks and balances, right? To prevent power from being held in the hands of fallen humans. Checks and balances, limited government, separation of powers, federalism, rule of law, due process of law, representative government, right? All these systems, that our founding fathers brought together and created were because they understood human nature. Today, we don't understand human nature, which is why these fools think we should just have democracy or a dictatorship and everything will be fine. I love this fact here. If you uh, look at the oaths of office that were required in many state constitutions, and if you look at different statutes and, and different um, uh, constitutions even in the founding era, over and over and over, you see this term again. And it's easy. It's easy to just like like gloss over because it's like weird language, right? But it'll talk about future state of rewards and punishments. Like a funny way to, like what is that? Future state of rewards and punishment. So here's just one example. This is the Constitution of the uh, state of South Carolina. This is uh, uh, 1778. Uh, That all persons and religious societies who acknowledge that there is one God and a future state of rewards and punishments and that God is publicly to be worshipped shall be freely tolerated. Uh, and that's just one example. There's many, many oaths as, as, as well that have that in there. What does that mean? The, the future rewards of, of uh, the future rewards and punishment. That's heaven and hell. That's what they're talking about. There. They believe in heaven and hell. Most churches don't even talk about hell anymore. Churches, most churches, don't even talk about hell. Let alone the world. That obviously is going to shape uh, the worldview of our founding fathers. So I could go on, and uh, we will a little more in the final segment. But let's take a break. Let's come back with our, our wonderful guests. I want to find out more uh, about the book of Leviticus, the who, what, where, why, when, and then why is it so relevant to us still today? It is, it is once you read it, 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 at first you're like, wait, what is going on here? But once you get a little bit of understanding, then it all starts to fall in place, and it is a beautiful thing. I'm super grateful you're here. The book of Leviticus, coming up next. Spread the
0: word. download the viator app now and use code viator 10 for 10 off your first booking in the app find travel experiences for you do more with viator
1: hey Sunday crusaders i'm so excited to dive into leviticus finally now and i can think of no better person to start us off then Rabbi Pincus Taylor. He is the founder of the Ark, which is an online Hebrew Bible study and coaching program. And please definitely check that out, Rabbi. How are you, sir? I'm
2: doing great. Thanks for having me again.
1: I'm great for you. Here. What's the website of the Ark? I want people to go there.
2: It's Taylor.com with the forward, forward slash ark, A R K,
1: like Noah's Ark. Super. Uh, okay. Take us there. Uh, give us the who, what, where and when of Leviticus. The Israelites, they're just out of Egypt. They've been in Egypt, they've been surrounded by polytheism and ritual and and cults and all this stuff. And now they're at Mount Sinai. What are they thinking and feeling and doing?
2: So interestingly enough, from the Exodus, when they left Egypt, there was a process of sort of purification, if you will, that went on until they received the Torah at Mount Sinai 50 days later. And so they had slowly been growing, slowly working on their emotional attributes, uh, regaining aspects of their faith that they had been disconnected with, and that when they received the Torah at Sinai, that was the moment that they 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 achieved the pinnacle of their of their belief of their connection with God. Then we know how the story goes in in the rest of Exodus. God. Um, the, the people uh, wind up worshiping a golden calf. Uh, God uh, winds up forgiving them. Moses pleads for the forgiveness. And now we find ourselves in the desert. So Leviticus begins where we are commanded to start utilizing the Mishkan, the tabernacle, in the desert. And the function of the tabernacle was where the, really the nexus between spirituality and physicality would would join together. Eventually, when the Israelites entered into the land of Israel, they would build the Holy Temple, which would be the permanent structure, uh, the location that God and the Israelites would commune. And so this temporary structure was where the sacrifices were offered, where the connection to God was perhaps most strongest, where godliness was really felt in a palpable physical way
1: even. Why did God want a tabernacle why did he do that as opposed to anything else?
2: Well the it's a great question. so one of the reasons that God creates a, a physical place that where his glory is sort of revealed in in the clearest sense is so we can have uh, we can have a semblance of connection we can have a, a place where godliness is is felt, is experienced in a way unlike anywhere else in the world. Truth be told, uh, our belief is that when Mashiach comes during the times of the messianic redemption, uh, godliness will be apparent, openly revealed across the entire world. The the tabernacle and later the temple were sort of a miniature representation of what the entire universe is going to look like at that time.
1: Okay. Uh Talk to me about the sacrifices, because this is uh, something that can really turn a lot of people off quickly, right? Like, we're killing all these animals, we're like, what's what's happening here? So there, there were a lot of different types of
2: sacrifices, by the way, a lot of people tend to think of sacrifices as being exclusive to sin. Uh, that's uh, when a person did something wrong unintentionally that they would bring a sacrifice. There were other sacrifices that were offered. I, I think the best idea or representation for the sacrifices is about what's going on on the inside of us. Okay, And, and what I mean by that is again, the temple or, or the tabernacle in this case was a physical location that manifests, that expressed spiritual ideas. So when I looked at the physical location of the tabernacle or of the temple, I would see spiritual paradigms playing out in front of my face in a physical way. And so when a person sins, or a person wants to even just uplift themselves, make themselves better, the idea is that you are slaughtering the animal within yourself. You know, when, when, we're, when we do something that we're not supposed to do, what's the reason that we do it? The animal part of my nature got the best of me, momentarily. I erred, I, I made a mistake. And so the idea of slaughtering one's animal, the idea of a sacrifice, is the idea of internally slaughtering the animal within, slaughtering those animalistic drives, those tendencies that would lead you off the godly path. Uh, And so whether it was offering a Thanksgiving sacrifice, whether it was a sin sacrifice, this was a physical expression, a physical manifestation of what was going on on the inside. I like to compare it maybe even to when you get flowers for your wife. The person does wrong to their wife, because it's always the husband that does wrong, by the way. When when the mm-hmm. husband makes the mistake uh, and he has these heartfelt feelings of, of remorse, of apology, uh, he might go to the store and get some flowers for his wife. If he if the flowers are a manifestation of the feeling of, of forgiveness and of, of love that he's trying to express, they'll be very very nicely received. If he's just said, "Eh, I did wrong thing here, have have some flowers, his Mm -hmm. wife's going to tell him exactly where he can stick those flowers. (laughs) And so the idea of the sacrifices was a physical manifestation of a spiritual principle. And that's why we don't offer sacrifices, by the way, outside of the temple. Since the temple has been destroyed and we don't have, we're not privy to Mm -hmm. experiencing a spiritual uh, existence in a physical place, the the offering of sacrifices has uh, has stopped, and we we simply, if we want to connect with God in a in a special way, we we maintain it only on the inside, only the personal yeah. feeling and pr- bringing of ourselves to God.
1: Talk to me about Aaron, uh, and and what what what's important about Aaron, and and what is established here.
2: Sure, Aaron is the the high priest. He's the one who facilitates a lot of the rituals. He is the one who is in many ways, the representative of the Jewish people, in particular in gaining forgiveness on the holiest day of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Uh, He facilitates, he is sort of the holiest man in the holiest place on the holiest day of the year that is the representative on behalf of the Israelites to uh, seek their forgiveness. And he overall is manager, the, the head of the tabernacle service. So he's he plays a very special role. Moses is the prophet who is engaged with God and the essentially the leader of the entire nation. Aaron's role is specific to the to the tabernacle, and uh, later on would be hit, his role would be filled by the high priests in the temple.
1: Got it. Um, what do we um, talk to me about? God is holy. I think it's mentioned like 50 times or so in Leviticus. I am holy. What do we get from this? Yeah, not not only not only does God
2: say He's holy, He actually instructs us to be holy because He's holy, right? So you shall be holy, or I, God, am holy. So the first question is, what does it mean to live a holy life? And so the 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 especially when you have many uh, different commandments and rituals that are in the book of Leviticus that instruct us on what holy living, to eat certain foods and to offer sacrifices and purity and impurity, all all would be in the description of, of holiness. So what is this commandment? You shall be holy, adding. And so the answer is, in the things that are mundane in your life, in the things that are not commanded and not prohibited, just the things that are mundane, they're allowed that you should sanctify God even in that which is permitted to you. So things like eating, things like sleeping, things like working, those can all be a godly activity if done with the proper perspective. If eating a hamburger is only about satisfying my gluttonous desires, well, I maybe didn't do anything wrong per se, but I haven't acted in a holy fashion. And so the idea is that I'm also refueling to be a better servant of God, to do my mission in the world. And it's interesting that even in English, even in English, the word holy comes, is related to the word holy with a W, right? Meaning that you're entirely dedicated to God. Everything you do is for a divine purpose.
1: In in our tradition, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> no, so, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, because I think that also ties yeah. into one last verse. We only got about 45 seconds. Uh, Leviticus yeah. 26, five: you will eat the bread to uh, satiety. How, how do you pronounce that word?
2: In, until you're satisfied. And, yeah. and so the, the, the blessing over there is that in, in response to observing the commandments, you'll eat bread and you'll be satisfied. Not necessarily will you have the quantity, but you'll be satisfied with what you have. That, that's a very important lesson for us in our lives. We're, there's a broader, much broader context. In our tradition, where there's a question that's asked in the Mishnah, who's considered a wealthy person? And the answer is the person who's satisfied with what they have. Mm-hmm. If you if you make fifty million dollars and you're surrounded by billionaires and you're not satisfied with what you have, you're you're much you're, you're you don't feel like you're a very wealthy person. If you are have gratitude. what you have and you recognize and you're you're happy with the lot that you had it could be a lot less number in the bank but you're happy If you you are a very wealthy person and so in our tradition wealth is much more about mindset than it is about money and having being satisfied with the things that we have that's the blessing that comes through the observance of the Torah's commandments
1: beautiful and and from thousands of years ago and perfectly relevant to today still always uh, Rabbi Pincus Taylor founder of The Ark. Go to his website, pinkustaylor.com slash ark uh, to take this uh, online Hebrew Bible course. Wonderful. Rabbi, great to hear from you, sir. Thank you. Thanks so much, Mike. Coming up next, uh, we got another guest. Uh, Full disclosure, my pastor. More about Leviticus. Spread the word. Hey, Sighted Crusaders, welcome back to our special about the Book of Leviticus. So full disclosure, our next guest, uh, I've been uh, attending, my family's been attending uh, his church for uh, the last few months now as we've been going through the Book of Leviticus. And I bring that up also because uh, my understanding is church attendance at Barabbas Road Church here in San Diego has like about doubled as Pastor Matt Smith does hour-long sermons on Leviticus. Which doesn't seem like, like, seriously, I, like Matt, Pastor Matt Smith is here with us. Pastor, how are you, sir? Uh, doing. i doing uh, my, my wife and I, were, you know, our first sermon we heard, it was like Leviticus 12 or whatever. And uh, we're like, how is anyone here? Like, we love this. But we look around the room, we're like, it's amazing that other people love this too. Uh, so it's been amazing. So what is what do you think this says about our culture that uh, people are so hungry for study of Leviticus
3: yeah it's a great question so um, the big experiment if you will has just been to trust that when God says his word is relevant and powerful that means the whole thing right so uh, I was convicted just thinking through the idea that you know after Jesus resurrection he brought them through the scriptures and beginning with Moses uh, taught them the things concerning himself and so I'm like man I just feel like we're missing sometimes the power of the Word of God, like the whole thing. We've heard so much pablum for so long. And so we just started, uh, we've, we've gone through the whole New Testament. We've done Genesis and Exodus and then just finished Leviticus. And we've seen folks show up. And I think there's a hunger to know, to kind of cut through all the, I don't want to say it was the propaganda and all the hype. You know, people want to know what it really says. Uh, I just think they're a little afraid of it. And so the fact that we're willing to take this book that seems sort of daunting, you know, uh, people were excited, and I mean, when you'd stand up to read it, uh, people would be like, "What in the world is this gonna be about?" You know. And then, but then when they see it, they see God, they see the gospel in that. Uh, man, it's eye-opening. I think they invited their friends, but it was always a weird thing to see. They'd bring somebody, they'd stand up, we'd read it, and people would be like, "What in the world am I doing here?" And then they'd hear it afterwards and be like, "Wow, the Bible's amazing." So it mm. was pretty cool. Amen.
1: What? Uh, well, let's bring that Where? Where is the gospel in Leviticus? And where's Jesus in Leviticus?
3: Uh, so chapter one begins right away with, with this picture of an offering. And I, I didn't send that one over, but just Leviticus one, 1 to one seven is the first thing you see. And you, and you start off, understand this came after Exodus. So they're on Mount Sinai, the, the Jewish people, and God is telling Moses, giving him the owner's manual on how to worship using the tabernacle and the priesthood, right? And so right away at the very beginning, you have this picture of like how to bring a sacrifice, which seems immediately irrelevant to us, right? But the the, the first thing that jumps out is that when you would bring a sacrifice, a burnt offering, it, it tells us that it's the you know the the people are to bring, it says, when any of you of the people of Israel brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring it, and you know, bring a livestock and so on. And then he says, if his offering is a offering from the a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it, he shall bring it, he shall lay his hand on the head. And then he shall kill it. And then the priest's job isn't to actually kill the animal at that point. It's to, like, catch the blood, right? And so here you are. You commit a sin, and you go to this this place, and you bring this animal that's supposed to be in your place. And you would lay your hand on the head of that animal, and then you yourself would then kill the animal. And and while you confess your sin over that animal, right? And the priest's job is to catch it. And so immediately you get this picture from the beginning of the Bible but Leviticus makes it. Uh, you know, vivid that this animal is representing you, and it's taking your place, and that sin is a really big thing. So you know, we always say that you know God loves the sinner and hates the sin, but the thing that separates the sinner from their sin is the cross. And so you see this picture point forward to Jesus Christ. So it begins with this idea, and then all through you see this picture of, of sort of the high priesthood, and later, not to jump too far ahead, but just kind of sum it up in a in a minute. You, know, you get to Leviticus 16, for example, and you see verse 23. Um, you see the high, you know, Aaron, the high priest come in. And when he's done with his work, he's told to take the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and leave them there. And so if you remember when the the when everyone found the empty tomb, they found those linen garments in the tomb. And, you know, Jesus is not there. He's done. He's done with his work. He's finished. The high priest has finished his work of you know, uh, you know, and they sat down at the right hand of the Father, like the book of Hebrews says. So all the whole thing's pointing forward to Jesus, but it also pictures that substitution and the work of Christ all the way throughout. It's, it's very vivid. And, and, and um, so, well, I mean, the New Testament's really a commentary on the Old, right? So it, it comes alive in that way. So it's amazing. It's yes, so good.
1: And like, like that, that story right there, like it's amazing. I think you may have even talked about this last week. Like, you have all these books of the Bible that are written over you know, how many people, over how many years, and they're so perfectly in line and in tune with each other. Like, that's absolutely stunning. Can you speak to that?
3: You know, you have, if I'm honest, right, you, you take any any guru or guy in a cave can write a book and it can it can be all over the place, but you have the Bible written by 40 authors, um, you know, 66 books by 40 authors over 1,500 years um, on, you know, from paupers to princes, from oppressors to oppressors, I mean, you see people from every, you know, place of life talking about all sorts of subjects and in all of it, it it ends up leading to the same conclusion to the same person with the same tone without contradiction and so often people will say hey you know tell me about jesus but don't use the bible and i'm like well what do you mean The one of the 66 books from different people on different continents throughout history for 1500 years that actually point to jesus christ so it, the cohesiveness of scripture is almost is its own best evidence there's we have an embarrassment of riches in 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 its in its way it speaks and it's consistent throughout right so that's the key that's so amazing like even though people are the authors god's a superintending providential author of all of it and so you can see his message all the way through i mean when you're in genesis you can tell that this is god's book in the same way you can when you're in revelation so it's uh and you know that when you go through it you know what i mean it's just we get stuck on the genealogies and the details um often because we just aren't sure what you know what the narrative is and we're used to using the bible like a recipe book where we take verses here and there, um, but it's, it, there's a narrative and we gotta understand it that way. And when we do, it, it becomes pretty awesome, right? So. Yeah. Uh,
1: talk to me about the, uh, God says a lot in this, I think 50 times or so, uh, I am holy. What do we learn about the holiness of God through Leviticus?
3: Yeah, um, I think it is great. So God basically lays out his worship. Like here's how you're gonna be holy because I'm holy, right? So first of all, all that he repeats it over and over again. Be holy because I'm holy. And we think of holiness as just sort of a drag or something that like he's getting, like God's a, a teetotaler or a rule giver. But holiness is the idea, it's a means to an end, right? So if God's like, if I'm holy, I want you to be holy because that's who I am, and this is how we're gonna be as Jesus' high priestly prayer, then we're gonna be perfectly one. So holiness is this idea of being perfectly one with the Lord. And so it's a means to that. And so essentially it just means being other, it means being sort of alien and not like other things. And so We see that all throughout the Bible where, for example, um, Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10 uh, offer strange fire before the Lord after he lays out this whole thing. And God consumes them right away, right from the start. And it's sort of scary. It's almost like they're surprised by God's holiness. And I think right away you, you realize there's, I call that certain the flames of presumption because that's really with holiness, God's not an idol. He tells us how to worship him. And so we don't get to pick you know, you know, how we want to worship him. And so he tells us, and here's who he is, and we don't get to make him the way we want. We're supposed to be like him. And so that, that's all throughout Leviticus. And it, it, it's, it's helpful because, in light of all this of grace, you know, this goodness, we don't want to take that for granted. He's actually real. He's not just a vending machine, just, you know, trying to, we can make anything and, you know, get whatever soda we want, right? Uh,
1: so. I got a big question. I got a big question that that leads into. Because uh, you're speaking of, you know, all consuming fire and there's wrath and judgment. I think people, because uh, So I've been a Christian for like eight years or so. So I think still relatively recent enough where I can think back to my atheist days when I was very critical of all this stuff. So one of the arguments that, that I would have made or what I would have thought of as, um, or even actually when I was a new Christian, is that's Old Testament God, right? That's, that's like mean, wrathful, take out a whole city, mean God. And now we have like nice God. We have the New Testament God who's nice and loving and all that. Stuff. Uh, same God. <laughs> so how are we supposed to make sense of that?
3: Well, most people that, that say that, I mean, they, 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 they intend well, but usually that comes from an idea in the New Testament. First of all, that's not actually, like when you actually look at it, Jesus talks more about you know, hell and judgment, the red letters, uh, than anybody else really, right? So that's so you see that Jesus talks about judgment and, and you get to Revelation, for example, and, and it says everyone that's afraid during judgment, it says they, they, they hide in caves and say, save us from the wrath of the lamb. Now, you know what I mean? Like, so that's the one side on the cross. But then you go to the Old Testament, you look in Leviticus, for example, and you remember Aaron, the high priest in Exodus, offered a golden calf. I mean, it's the most scandalous moment, right? Here they are, Moses up getting on Mount Sinai, and Aaron brings them in the worship of a golden calf. Well, here's the high priest that God instills, and it's Aaron, that same guy, and the first offering he's to make was for himself, and it's a calf. So in Leviticus 9, um, he's supposed to take a bull calf for his own sin before he starts to deal with the people's sin. I mean, if you're Aaron, first of all, you blew it really bad. Second of all, God's using you to lead the people. I mean, this is a picture of grace and redemption, and here he is offering a calf, being like, oh I mean, how do you not get overwhelmed by the fact that you don't deserve the grace. You see grace throughout the old Testament and the new, and just like you see God's wrath and judgment, it's it's there throughout the whole time. You see a a full picture of God in both, both testaments all the way through. Uh, You just gotta, but but most of us just aren't willing to hear that and and read it. And when you do, it's, it's amazing. I mean,
1: we, uh, on that point, we kicked off with, uh, Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. We talked about covenant. Um, what does that mean to God? Because I think it was in Leviticus 26 where it's like, if you do these things, I will do these good things. Or if you do these good things, I'll do these good things. If you do these bad things, then whole man watch out and he goes to this whole list of all these like terrible, you know, awful things that he's going to do. How do we make sense of that in
3: light of grace as well? Yeah, that's a... So here's the thing. So this is a... It's conditional, right? So here's the blessings if you obey. And here's not... But check this out. It, it's... The part that's so shocking about the covenant here is when he says, look... If you don't obey, I'm going to do this to you, and then I'm going to do this to you, and then I'm going to do this to you. And if you still don't repent, I'm going to do this to you. And so we tend to read it as like reward and punishment. But imagine somebody like a parent saying to a kid, hey, if you misbehave, I'm going to come. It's a a picture of what God's going to do to chase after them. Like, like look at how, how much he cares, how much he's going to chase after them over and over and over again as their people. Remember, this covenant wasn't about them becoming the people of God. This was because they were. And so here's what he was gonna do to follow through them. And, he, and every single thing he said happened. I mean, they went into captivity and, and there's no temple in Israel right now that they can worship God. They literally cannot follow. A, you know, a Jewish person, as much as they might wanna follow the, the Tanakh, cannot follow the prescriptions to sacrifice and worship. You know, they're not able to do that. And so these are the, the pictures of a nation that, that sort of rejects God. But there's one detail I think is helpful for people is that when you hear about Israel, you're reading about sort of a nation, geopolitics, and the church is a little different. So it's not as easy to think about how it immediately applies to the individual. We have to build a little bit of a bridge. Um, But in God's covenant, the picture that's so shocking isn't just the blessings and the curses, but the fact that he's promising to pursue. And I think that's so amazing.
1: Amazing. Uh, Last question for you, uh, because I got my uh, final segments coming up next, and I'm gonna talk about uh, leprosy. Right? which was uh, Leviticus 13, and I'm going to steal a lot from your sermon there. But but what do we need to know about uh, leprosy in the Bible and how that relates as a picture of our sin today?
3: Yeah, leprosy was a picture of—it uh, separated you from worship in every way, right? And so it made you—and and people used to have to— the leper had to go into the community and, and cover his mouth and say, unclean, unclean, so people knew. And so in one sense, especially during the pandemic— Everyone got a chance to feel like a leper a little bit, right? Like we felt unclean. I mean, truly, that's this this crazy thing. So this picture is people separated from worship by their uncleanness. And we see that. And and that was, was just built. It was a sad affair, right? And then you get to the New Testament, and the shocking thing is the leper, who's supposed to be separated from everyone, comes up to Jesus. And Jesus, it says, reaches out and touches the leper. He heals him, but he touches him. And I think it's amazing because Jesus doesn't need to touch anybody to heal anybody, right? So him touching this leper is a huge deal. And it just really shows the grace of God to come in into our dirtiness, into our uncleanness, and to get dirty with us and to, you know, to reach out to touch us. And he did this to show this man that he's loved. And so leprosy, you build up the case. And again, the New Testament's able to, to respond to the thing that we see in Leviticus. And if we don't understand Leviticus, we don't understand the impact of that scene in you know Mark, for example. And, and so it's amazing. So
1: uh, we got about 30 seconds, Pastor. Uh, you said, because now we're doing, you're going through Luke and you said some statement and this is not right, but Craig McRion was something like, uh, Luke looks kind of easy, but there's like a ton of to it that you got to dive deep. And Leviticus, on the other hand, like looks super hard, but once you read it, like makes perfect sense and relevancy. Uh, w- give it a little inspiration, like you're fine. Uh, and I should say it like this. Now that you've done like a year of studying Leviticus uh, and going over it all, what's your big takeaway and encouragement for people to to read it, dive into it?
3: Yeah, I think if you take your time in Leviticus and you structure the passage, you're gonna find you're gonna see the structure in ten minutes. I mean, like in every passage you go through, it's very structured, it is not scary or hard. And once you see it, you'll be able to spot, you know, what's the emphasis there. And once you can see the structure, it's the so what of the passage that leads you into the New Testament and it and it becomes the color behind it. And so if if Leviticus is seen in its light. All of a sudden, the New Testament comes as the prequel, if you will, to everything you're going to see. And so, I wouldn't be afraid of it. Now, when you get to Luke, for example, that's tricky because Christ hasn't died on the cross yet. He's still sort of talking to people under the Old Testament still. And there's a there's a, a trickiness. It's not just you know one to one. You have to do some work and nuance. Whereas Leviticus, you kind of get the problem right away, and and you can see it. I mean, the structure is really plain. It's not playing a lot of uh, subtlety, you know what I mean? So uh, I think it's a great yeah. book for people not to be afraid of. Um, and there's some, you know, it's not a lot of commentaries, unfortunately, that I wish were really awesome, but, that you know, you can always go to our sermons and check them out. They're on the line.
1: Barabbas Road. Uh, Pastor, thank you for leading our family through Leviticus. Yeah. It's been awesome. And uh, for being here. What's the website for Barabbas Road?
3: Barabbas.com. So B-A-R-A-B-B-A-S.com.
1: Beautiful. Pastor Matt Smith. Thanks, brother. Appreciate you. God bless. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, man. Uh, coming up, we'll go into a little more detail on what the pastor was just speaking of uh, about the lepers, Leviticus 13. Mike Slater, spread the word. Hey, Slater Crusaders. Welcome back to our special on Leviticus, and we will end our very shallow dive on Leviticus, but hopefully... Uh, It inspires you to read it yourself. And I recommend Barabbas Roadshirt for a whole year's worth of sermons on every single chapter. Let's look at Leviticus 13. Again, seems so irrelevant. It's about leprosy. So leprosy is mentioned about 40 times in the Bible. Specifically, it is a skin disease. uh, Often uh, results in, and you see people with uh, fingers and limbs missing. That's not from the leprosy itself. Like we used to think that leprosy like eats the skin or something like that. What it does is it attacks your nerves so you have no nerve and no feeling in your fingers uh, so it's easy for your fingers to be cut off or burned off or infected or whatever you don't even know it so that's why there's missing limbs but leprosy also in the bible is referred to just general uncleanliness right so leviticus 13 13 talks about spots on the skin right? and I, we got to go quick here so please go read the whole thing but the point of it is it can be anyone And you could be thrown out of the camp and forced to be entirely alone, cast aside, forgotten because you have some marks on your skin? Are you kidding me? I'm certain that right now you and I both have marks on our skin that a priest would banish you from the town because of. So what is that person to do? Leviticus 13 45 says the leprous person who has the disease, shall wear torn clothes, let the hair of his head hang loose, shall cover his upper lip, and cry out, unclean, unclean, like COVID. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So if you have any spot on your skin, that's what has to happen to you. Leviticus 14 is all about the process of getting clean again right you gotta make a sacrifice and then the priest puts oil on his hands and rubs it on your ear and there's a whole thing and there's a reason for all of that too by the way but the point is leprosy is a physical reminder of your sin you are an unclean person this is incredibly important this isn't like uh everyone's clean except for like that leprous guy whoa No, no everyone has a blemish on their skin you are an unclean person you with me now, the leprous person was supposed to be uh, openly mourning while they were unclean. Why? What are they mourning? They're not mourning the disease because, again, it's not, it's not like they're dying from the disease, it's like a little like th- mark on their right. Like. So, what are they mourning about? They're mourning because they've been cast outside of the camp. And as we talked about with the rabbi, that's the camp is where the tabernacle was, that's where back then you communed. With God. So you were kicked out of it. You were outside of fellowship with God. The leprous person was separated from people and from God. And that's the worst thing possible. That's the worst thing conceivable. Psalm 84 4 it says, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, God, the tabernacle. Better, verse 10, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. So this leprous person, you, you're isolated, ostracized, away from even the ability to praise God. You would mourn that. Now, this is where Jesus comes in, So the Pharisees ask Jesus, they say, why are you eating and drinking with uh, tax collectors and sinners? What's going on? And Jesus said, well, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He says, I've not come to call the righteous, but Sinners. It's you. that's me. Without Jesus, you are unrighteous. You are the tax collector. You are the blind man. You are the lame man. You are the leper who's cast out of communion with God. You're out of the camp. You're out of the tabernacle. That's how Jesus saves. If you don't know Jesus, you're outside of the camp. And the absolute worst thing that could happen for you is that you're cast outside of the camp. You're away from the tabernacle, communion with God, and you enjoy it. Remember, Pastor Smith was telling the story of uh, his prayer for the lost and unrepentant is that you are miserable in your lostness so that you will see your need. And that's the whole point of this leprosy thing, to show you how unclean you are. And he tells the story of a friend who was uh, living with him because there were some fires in San Diego. So he had to get out of his house. So he was living with the pastor. And uh, he wasn't a Christian at the time. This guy, he was a nice moral guy, right? And uh, Matt's like, hey, can I pray for you? And and the guy's like, sure, whatever. Again, I wasn't a Christian. So he's like, yeah, I don't care. Uh, So so uh, Pastor Smith said, God, I pray you make Nick miserable until he accepts you. (laughs) And they're done. And and the guy's like, "What, what are you doing? Why would you pray that? That's a horrible thing. And Matt's like, well, you don't believe in God, right? So what's the matter? Who cares? Two weeks later, life went poorly. He came back to mad, all dejected and uh, like a leper. Our sin is a disease that covers our garments. It covers our house. We swim in it. It affects and defiles us. We are hopelessly unclean. But don't despair. As told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, a man full of leprosy. Full of it. Not a little uh, freckle full of leprosy, full of disgustingness, came to Jesus. And just the scandal of that alone, right? Right, You're supposed to be cast aside. You're, outs- you're like, you have to stay much more even than six feet away. You have to stay far away. Right? This guy comes right next to Jesus. Scandal. And the man said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So the fact that he said, Lord, right up front says all you need to know about that man's heart. And then Jesus did. He said, I am willing to be clean. And as pastor. Matt Smith just told a second ago, God, uh, Jesus touched the leper, which he didn't have to do. But he did. He did it because you're not supposed to. You're not supposed to touch them. You're not allowed to be near them. They're not allowed to be near you. You're not allowed to be near them. you got to be way more than six feet away. But touched him. Maybe, maybe, maybe the first time this man's been touched in decades. But in this moment, the uh, great physician once you know Leviticus 13 it is even more powerful. There's a lot of sin in the world and your sin makes you as filthy as a leper. But you are not forsaken. Eternal life is available, available for you. And because I have one more minute here, let me go uh, make one last point. Surely you've seen videos of people uh, shoplifting with no shame surely you've seen all the examples of indoctrinating our kids into homosexuality and transgenderism and all the rest with no shame openly celebrating it flaunting it all the rest these people who do this are lepers in the sense that they have no nerve endings anymore they're numb to what they're doing now again oh don't judge blah 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 I know I'm judging I just did this whole thing about how we are all lepers but so are they and the difference is we know it. They don't see the difference. So there's no question that, because I know what we're all thinking like, what? what is like all this chaos around us all the time? Like, why is everything, why is everything like seem like falling apart? Well, we're an unvirtuous people politically, socially, morally, spiritually, no question that that would result in chaos. And it's a lot harder to put civilization back in order once you lose it. And we are losing it. So people are like, oh, we need more policies or better politicians. No, right? We need to get connected again to our conscience. Your conscience is just like the physical pain that you you feel when you touch a hot stove, right? You touch a hot stove, the physical pain says, don't touch that hot stove anymore, right? Your conscience is the same thing, but to moral danger. But when your conscience becomes so seared, so numb, so fried that your conscience doesn't cry out to you anymore. That's when you as a person and we as a people are in trouble. Again, we used to think of the people who died from leprosy because we thought it was the leprosy that killed them, right? The disease ate away at their bodies. No, it's not that the disease eats away at you. It's that people stop feeling pain. So their body doesn't feel the pain anymore and you do things that destroy your body, like touch a hot stove. You don't know it's hot, burns your hand off. So imagine that, but for our souls, the numbness and the leprosy of our souls. And dare I say that you and I are just as sinful as the shoplifter, whoever else, shoplifter, that leper over there. Let's not think we're any better than that. There's a way out. I'm saved, but what?